<laughs> Go on. Spoil, spoil my story. No, spoil my story. Let's get married. Why don't I'm a journalist. Okay. I'm, you know, if I'm in the ballpark, it's like a positive. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Cohen. I'm the editor of Business Maverick. I'm talking as we usually do on Tuesdays with Mark Barnes, who's an investment banker. We talk about what's happened in the week. We unpack stuff. We're also very happy to talk about what you'd like to talk about. Please let us know and please rate us on whatever podcast system you use. It's very important, apparently. I don't know why. I've never done it myself, <laughs> but apparently you should. So please do. Thank you very much. All righty, Mark, tell me something. How are you feeling? Well, um, uh, how kind of you to ask. As my mummy used to say, you got a bit of tummy trouble, boy. So I'm not sure that that's broadcastable, but it does sort of uh, take on a different slant when we when we look just to the other side of the Burwos curtain at Hamans Kral and we start wondering whether cholera is the canary of our water system. All right, the canary of our water system. I'm afraid I'm going to have to just pull you up there on that phraseology. It is a canary in the coal mine or a canary in the gold mine. Yeah, The canaries by themselves are absolutely fine. Canaries in the gold mine who die mean that you have to hot-foot it out of the damn mine pretty snappish. But anyway, cholera, as you say, very important and worrying sort of outbreak in Hammerskroll. Yeah, I mean, so canaries don't like mining. Okay, that's, <laughs> you know, if, if they've got career choices and someone goes mining, flying around in the free air of nature, visiting your mates down the road, Mining never gets a tick. <laughs> yes, that's but right. That's how, you know, I went down a mine once when I was a student. Okay. Um, I went down Kloof Mine, right. which is the deepest mine in South Africa. And it was a harrowing experience, to say the least. I had a new respect for miners and for the stuff that they extract at great pains down, 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 down there. You get into this cage, which goes down, and it goes down fast. And there, I mean, even if there is electricity, there are no lights, and you're surrounded by these Proper oaks, okay. And when they see this softy university student, you know you're in trouble. And so you go down there, and there are only two things to be really scared of down at the bottom of the mine. <laughs> the first one is an earthquake, but more terrifying than that is the mine captain. Okay. He is a guy who holds order down in the mine. Anyway, they took me there to the rock face. You climb in these stopes between compacted piles of wood that have been squashed almost flat so that you have to leopard cord. It was terrifying. You lose weight instantly for whatever number of reasons. Okay. But what a great experience and a bit of an eye-opener, hey? Yeah. I've been down a gold mine. I've also been down a diamond mine. And can I just tell you, the contrast between gold mining and diamond mining is absolutely extraordinary. In diamond mines, first of all, you sort of walk down to the stope. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, the, the mine tunnels are huge. They have these enormous vehicles, which are sort of rock crushers and collectors, which are all run, by the way, like on remote control from somebody who's standing 100 meters away with one of those sort of control devices. Um, it's absolutely incredible. With a jacket and tie on, sipping a little gin and tonic, no doubt. You know. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's right. Oh, God. As one does when one goes mining. Can I just change topics quickly to what's been happening over the last week? I think one of the most interesting things has been the sort of grumpiness of business people in their results announcements over the past you know, two weeks. Obviously, the big issue is load shedding, but it is extraordinary how almost every CEO of almost every company that has presented results has been just unremittingly angry and frustrated about what load shedding is doing to their businesses. 
I think the high watermark was Astral Foods. Yeah. Astral said, and I'm not making this up, that South Africa is likely to experience political instability, policy uncertainty, deteriorating infrastructure, municipal service delivery failure, power cuts, increasing hunger, social unrest, and more poverty. I mean, wow. <laughs> that makes earnings per share sort of slide into the background somewhat. Eh? I mean, I also saw that ShopRite, which is our biggest retailer, I'm told, has got 23 rugby fields worth of solar panels on its roofs. I don't think we should bother with roof tiles anymore. You just tile your house with solar. You know, they're going to build them into the tiles in, in, in future. Those of us who can afford to are trying all and every mechanism yep. to foretell for this, this stage eight plus world that we're walking into. And, and the government and the spokespeople for them in their various mixed up capacities seem not to be at idem about the future of electricity supply. I mean, the new Minister of Energy is a frequent visitor at all of the Eskom plants and things, and Grady, it seems to me, is a kapowership man, regardless of what we might think or what the law might say. And then I'm not sure, you know, where Pravin comes in. It's not a good place. Eh? And you sent me a graph earlier of, you know, the load shedding yeah. in 2023 versus 2022 versus 2022. It is an astonishing climbing graph of despair. Yeah, I, I did wonder whether you know, South Africa might, might actually satisfy its Paris Accord undertakings simply because, you know, South African businesses are so desperate. I just saw in the net care results a couple of days ago too, they have got, I think it's 40 or 50 hospitals, might be wrong, but they are planning an absolutely extraordinary solar panel, you know, rollout. Because, of course, at a hospital, you can't have no electricity, right? Yeah. They are now spending enormous, enormous amounts of money yeah. on diesel. So all of a sudden, having solar panels at every single hospital really does make financial sense. So, you know, a little bit of a silver lining to an incredibly, incredibly dark cloud. It, it would be funny if it weren't so sad and so scary, but people are waking up in the mall. I mean, increasingly, you read about people... I wouldn't like to be on the night shift in a morgue, okay, when one of the boxes starts knocking. Hello? Hello? And you go like, man, man, it's not you. And you, and you just go outside and you have a smoke. You just think, you know, and then you come back and it's, hey, hello, it's cold in here. Well, it used to be cold and it's warming up. And so I need to get out. Okay, it's getting too hot for this dead body in here. Okay, I'm starting to fraught. Anyway, I mean, uh, you know, we, we might laugh at it. The consequences of interrupted and absent electricity, the knock-on effect is becoming... Yep. I mean, water is the, is the next consequence of this energy crisis. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, unemployment is going to be a factor here. It's possible to sort of tally up what this might result in, but they're talking around about 800,000 jobs over the next year. So that is, whew, that is pretty scary. We just can't do that, actually. You know, wherever you drive, you see these willing yeah. laborers and people who have skills sitting on the side of the road, you know, with a painted piece of cardboard saying, please give me work. You know, it's not like we are attitudinally not keen to work. We are, yeah. you know, but there isn't work. And there isn't work because the expense profile of businesses has so radically changed because of the energy impact and the cost of its substitutes that people are changing how they think about their economic models. You know? And they are certainly not investing in future capacity until they can see an energy equation that warrants it. Yeah. I also wonder about the political consequences of this. You know, the whole business community was full over happy 
I think, when Cyril Ramaphosa became the head of the ANC in 2018. Now, my guess is that they are just grumbling under their breath, you know, more than grumbling under their breath. And I think it makes a difference. You know, if, if government can't command some kind of positive interaction with business, there's a political dimension to the consequences. Yeah, the tolerance level, you know, has dropped lower and lower and lower until the needs become primal and the reactions become primal. And so people in the streets, universally, where I've talked to people, are over it over this support, you know, this loyalty, no matter what, okay? And people are going like, you know, I'm not really cared about which politician's in charge or which party rules. I'm cared about yeah. filling my stomach and having running water. And by the way, we haven't had electricity for 11 days in one suburb I saw. And so now we're beyond popular votes. We're beyond sandwiches and T-shirts and dancing. We want delivery. And if there's a somebody who can stand up and produce an incrementally obvious step forward, they will get the vote yep. in 2024, yep. I hope. All right, let's change topics to something much more encouraging. The reading ability of South African kids. Wow. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's the subject of my column on Thursday, but here's the issue to me. It's at these basic levels of education that the foundation is formed or not formed from which to grow. So absent a solid foundation, absent knowing you know, how to read when you're 10 years old, keeps growing and expanding until you end up with a non-soundly based education, no matter which level you duck out. And then I saw the other day that about a quarter of, of our, our learners are leaving school in grade 11 because they have to go and find something to eat, okay? And so this is the genesis of future failure. You can't read in grade four. You start skipping around in grade five and six. You drop the pass mark in matric, and eventually you have an uneducated, don't know what we're really doing population. And if that happens, ultimately that translates into a lack of confidence and insecurity, an inability to get things done, and a reluctance to be told how those things should be done. And that's the condemning circle that I think we find ourselves in. And so my view is we have to go back to the beginning. No matter what it takes, we have to gather all of the stakeholders, wrap them in together and say, we're going, we're going to start again. We're going to the root and we're going to just work twice as hard and twice as fast, but we cannot get you from grade four to grade five unless you can read. Okay, so we're going to have to stay here tonight. We're going to have to learn how to read and mean and so on. And by the last point, I think that is the way out of poverty and inequality, education, knowledge, which translates into employability and productivity and all of those things. It's a great tragedy. It's a shame on us that have allowed this to happen to our children. Just to recap a bit, we're talking about the Progress in International Reading Literacy Study called PEARLS. It's done once every five years. It's an international study. 57 countries take part. South Africa came her, well, last, um, if we're just being honest about this. There's some sort of caveats that you have to throw in there. The first one is that yeah. the 57 countries that take part are, you know, basically middle-income country, countries and up. South Africa's score was not only bad, it was 288, a little bit more than half the score of the top scorer who was Singapore. The other little caveat that you do have to remember this is that they are, they are testing grade fours, so you're around about 10 years old at this point. 
And it's at that point that normally schools transition from indigenous language to English. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not quite apples for apples. Uh, language is a big issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would expect South Africa to not do as well as other countries. But here's the bad news. South Africa has now participated in two, yeah. and we have declined even more. <laughs> it's incredible. But, you know, I, I also wrote about this, Mark, and I'm not bragging here, but I did uh, write about it last, last week. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote about it first, <laughs> I bet. I bet you wrote about it first. Because you're actually the guru. What else have you got to do, right? I yeah. know, I know. We're just on top of this yeah. stuff. But I did look into this test, and I found one thing which I just thought was wonderful and heartbreaking at the same time. Okay. So just prior to the test, they ask all of the people that they're testing, do you enjoy reading? Do you like reading? It's a very simple question, right? Okay. So where did South Africa come on that test or on that sort of level? Here's the surprising thing. Just way above international average, way above. If you just ask South African kids, do you want to read more? The answer is twice as high as American kids. It's higher than Germany, Russia, France, and you know, basically everybody else. Just slightly less than, you know, the top quartile. That's very encouraging to me because, you know, it just means that the problem is not the kids themselves, right? But it's depressing because the problems are elsewhere. <laughs> My feeling is that the big problem is with teaching, obviously, but also with education of the family. If there was more sort of political, overt political support for reading, and there were people in our society who were talking about reading more, talking about books they love, you know, just generally being advocates for the idea of reading, they would encourage families to take more of an interest. And I think that's uh, that's a sort of key component. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you must presume that people who can't read understood the question about reading, right? And so um, <laughs> being a bit facetious. But, uh, you know, I think there's also the issue of substitutes. So now our kids, and I've seen this in restaurants where there's a kid of four or five or six years old having, you know, lunch with their parents and siblings. And the kids are on their phone playing a game. You know, that's where our responsibility has to step in because there's no reading involved in a game, okay? And, and it's easier and more visually stimulating. And so we, what we have is we have this escapism, which is not found in the imagination, which is where you find it when you read. It's found and presented to you in a, in a particular form. I see overseas, they're starting to want to, you know, restrict and censor content that goes to children. Goodness knows how you're going to be able to do that. I see in Montana, they banned TikToks. And, and so TikTok's now suing Montana because of their, you know, freedom of access to information and so on. There are lots of threads to blame. We talked about the parents and, and the institutions of learning. It is not the kid's fault, okay? It is definitely not the kid's fault. It is the other money-making shortcuts to entertainment, which we need to somehow put a ring around so that we can sit down you know, and talk and read at the supper table. And, and I think that's a big part of it. And the, the other you know, point is that AI is not going to be a substitute for knowledge and experience. Okay? AI is what it says it is. It's artificial intelligence. And, and if you don't know the difference, and if you don't know the context, I mean, take you know this, this predictive text. Every now and again, my phone will give a word which has got absolutely nothing to do with the sentence I'm writing, because it's the shortest algorithmic route to an alternative for which I type two letters. It is stupid. 
okay, because it doesn't know what it's doing. We are finding ourselves going down that, that hole as far as our kids are concerned who think that they know something when they don't and they can just tick on their phone. Yeah, it, it's a <laughs> comprehensive problem and we have to recognize it and fight it. You were talking a bit about TikTok. I was just amazed on the international front this week to see that Meta or Facebook um, got fined by the European authorities. Let's call them authorities. Yeah. 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 Called regulators. $1.3 billion. It was euros. Okay. Be specific then. <laughs> I'm a journalist. You know, I'm, I'm sort of in that. <laughs> Go on. Spoil, spoil my story. Yeah, spoil my story. Let's get married. Why don't you? I'm a journalist. Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, if I'm in the ballpark, it's like a, you know, it's like a positive. Yeah. It's like a, it changes from re- financial reporting to an opinion piece at some point. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exactly. But you know what I thought was incredible about this fine, right? The fine is not because they've fostered falsity and all of that sort of stuff. The problem is that they didn't hold the data on European customers in Europe. I mean, is that like really? So apparently the, their complaint about that is if you're a European citizen, there are no legal remedies, you know, if you want to fight Meta over privacy issues, right? But is that the biggest problem? Is that the, the problem is that your personal data is stored in another country? It just seems an incredibly trivial reason for, to me to find a company 1.3 billion euros. It just points to the center of gravity of all this you know, misguided directions that humanity is taking, which is money. You know? And so it's how do you make money out of that mistake or that regulation or that instead of how do you improve, you know, the, the lot of humanity? And I think that's where we all, you know, starting to get lost. You know, I privacy, I don't know. I, and I found a button on my phone which which is called focus, which I pressed by mistake. Okay. And that eliminated anyone from getting a hold of me. I could see their call coming through, but they were told to bugger off immediately that they got there. And, and, it, and it took me a good 10 minutes of diagnostics to figure out how to let my mates get hold of me again. And I regret it ever since. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Is there a sub button which is put this button on permanently yeah, and never yeah, switch well, it yeah. off? I mean, I spend more than <laughs> half the time when I'm going through, you know, Twitter and things like that, blocking information and fielding inappropriate calls. And I think we should change the whole system of privacy around. You ask permission before you arrive. We don't have to block you after you yes, exactly. That's that should be yeah, the rule. Yeah. We should be the gatekeepers of our own privacy. All right, Mark, thanks very much. That's very interesting, and I promise I will never block you. And if I'm asked about blocking, then you're free to call at any point. <laughs> Likewise. Thanks, Tim. Cheers, man. See you guys next week. Cheers, cheers. Cheers. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. The biggest pod, pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.